The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello, everybody. This is Kanaz Filan. Welcome to the seventh episode of Notes from the End of Time. It has been a long, strange trip, and after last week's episode, when I talked about the just war theory and the circumstances under which it might be moral to die for one's religion or to kill for one's religion or cause, I thought this week I'd do something a little less heated and controversial, and so this week I wanted to focus on racial disparities in intelligence tests. And this has become such an important question largely because we are an information-driven society. Information-driven societies arrange the world in categories, and information-driven societies like tests, which measure the subjects of suitability for various tasks. Today, we don't just measure every American child through standardized tests. We test children around the world. We've compiled all this data going back generations. We've run it through computers. We've sifted it through all kinds of algorithms. We've thrown in all kinds of possible correlating factors. We've made corrections, but the computers just keep spitting blasphemy back at us. When we sort the numbers by race on intelligence tests, some groups score higher than others. There's a 2005 article by Philip Rushton and Arthur Jensen noted a persistent gap of between 15 to 18 IQ points between black and white Americans. That would be 1 to 1.1 standard deviations. I've seen other tests, they go anywhere from the lowest I've seen was between 9 to 12 High is 17 to 19. Let's say the one that everybody agrees on is that the gap is generally around 15 points. Not just on standardized schooling tests. We see similar gaps on tests like the GREs, like SATs, LSATs. And because these scores are so important... To an individual's academic future, if they're to a professional future, and because the idea of absolute tabula rasa equality between races with all differences being due to social conditions is such a pillar of leftist ideology, the way that we've largely dealt with this inconvenient data when we weren't explaining it away as systematic racism on the part of the people designing the tests or whatever. As that started ringing hollow, what we started doing was suppressing it. Rushton and Jensen both wound up on the SPLC's naughty list for that and other articles. 
James Watson. He is a Nobel Prize winner. He was one of the people who mapped the double helix of DNA. He got no platform for insisting that there were racial differences on IQ. I mean, Vox even went so far as to expose him for his long series of racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, and even fat-shaming remarks. Charles Murray, of course, got attacked at Middlebury College. He wound up on the SPLC's naughty list for his comments on the bell curve. The problem is no matter how hard we try to suppress this information, those differences, and not just those differences, the socioeconomic disparities they predict stubbornly remain. Before we go any further, I really do need to offer one disclaimer. I don't really have a hard opinion on what causes these differences. These numbers keep coming up in test after test after test. I don't know what those numbers mean. I don't know why they happen. You know, my forte is really history and philosophy. It's not genetics and statistics. You know, I can't tell you a century from now will those disparities still be here. Will we know a century from now exactly why those disparities exist? Will we fix all of the ills that divide us? A hundred years from now, I can't tell you anything about that, but I can tell you one thing. One hundred years from now, we are still going to have simple people living among us. You can raise the median as high as you want. You could make us so smart the average IQ was 150. You'd still have people below that median. Talents are divided unequally. Not everybody can be the strongest, not everybody can be the prettiest, not everybody can be the smartest. We've spent decades pretending otherwise. To be completely fair, there are definitely people on the right who use the IQ numbers and other tests as proof that black people are inherently inferior, that they're inherently savage, unfit to live among us in civilization. And most of the people on the left, again, to be perfectly fair, have nobler intentions at heart. They believe that you know, these black people are not at all inferior in intelligence. They just score lower on these tests. And that if there's any correlation with that and anything else... They can fix that for the black people. They can make those black people more intelligent by improving their social standing, by getting rid of racism, by yelling Black Lives Matter. However, they want to fix it. They, I give them credit. They genuinely want to fix the problem and you know, thereby prove that let black people be just as smart as white people the way they should be. But I'm also noting a common thread here. Both the people on the left and the people on the right see a low IQ, see lower cognitive fa facility as a problem to be solved, and they think that people with lower cognitive ability 
either need to be cured or they need to be rejected as unfit. Both of them are seeking to create a world where all the children are above average and outside of Lake Wobegon that just doesn't exist. We can treat IQ as a sign that somebody is subhuman. We can pretend IQ doesn't exist. Or we can envision the real world, which is a world where people have different talents and different intelligences, and find a way, find a place for the intelligent among us and for the less intelligent among us to live and work together in a society where everybody was relatively happy, peaceful, productive, and prosperous. And while it used to be an ideal that everybody from the poorest to the wealthiest were part of the city of God and the kingdom of God and that every individual had a place therein, in the modern world, arguably since the Industrial Revolution, there's been much greater displacement of people from those traditional roles. There's been much more of a feeling of alienation. I think the modern era has been called the age of anxiety. And because we've now have more and more machines to do our manual labor and increasingly to do our thinking for us, workers have become outmoded. When you look at a tapestry from the Middle Ages, a lot of times you'll see the knights and the ladies and the king, but they would have all starved before their first quest without the peasants. I mean, knights needed farmers to till the land while they were out fighting or off on a crusade. If they wanted to keep, they needed carpenters and masons to build it. They needed grooms to tend their horses. Somebody had to muck out the stables. Somebody had to cook for the garrison. These jobs weren't as glamorous as knighthood. Maybe you didn't get your picture on a tapestry. The rewards were more modest, maybe. But the common folk were the foundation on which any realm's power rested. They were the king's greatest treasure and his greatest responsibility. An Englishman, John of Salisbury, in the 12th century, wrote that it was a knight's duty to defend the church, assail infidelity, venerate the priesthood, protect the poor from injuries, pacify the province, pour out their blood for their brothers, as the formula of the oath instructs them, and, if need be, to lay down their lives. And the first two things I want to point out are protect the poor from injuries and pacify the province. The Middle Ages were a very violent time. You had roving gangs of robbers and bandits outside the fiefdom. You had bloody feuds at revelries. You had arguments between neighbors that would go to violence. It was a very rough time. The knights were supposed to protect the peasants. From that, they were supposed to maintain order because this was often involved armed people. They frequently shed their blood and even laid down their lives protecting the poor, protecting their fellow knights from bandits, robbers, rapists, from 
all kinds of criminals. Peasants had to worry about disease. They had to worry about famine. They had to worry about war. They were surrounded by chaos, and they wanted order. And the established social order provided them with those boundaries, with that protection. It certainly was not a perfect system. There were bad kings. There were probably more bad kings than good kings. There were always wealthy and powerful people who looked down on. They exploited the poor and the weak. In the medieval times, you were generally born to your station. There were not a lot of opportunities for advancement. But if you were a farmer tilling the land your great-grandparents tilled, you didn't really have any interest in advancement. You didn't feel particularly oppressed by the idea your grandsons might be working the same soil under your lord's great-grandson. Even if you were poor, you were part of a church that honored the poor in spirit and talked about how blessed are the poor. A beggar could look at an image of St. Lazarus and know that someday if he prayed enough and he were, he were devoted, he might enter heaven. The nobles who refused him a penny might someday beg in hell for water. Poverty was sanctified by the mendicant friars, by the monks who sought alms alongside those beggars. The peasant knew St. Joseph was a carpenter. He knew the apostles were fishermen. He knew that his soul and the king's soul were both going to be judged by the same God. You know, he would be innocent of theology, philosophy, and literacy, but that peasant could get a better understanding of eternity by visiting a cathedral and looking at the light coming in through those stained glass windows than any scholar ever got from reading Saints Anselm or Aquinas. The peasant lived in a world where he had a place and where he knew his place. The peasant knelt before a lord, who knelt before a king, who knelt before the king of kings. And while the cunning cheated the naive, then as now, our ancestors had a certain fondness for simple people. There's a tale that was old when Cornwall was young of an innocent country boy named Jack who trades the family cow for magic beans. I mean, his mother's not happy about this, but it turns out those who abuse the slow-witted sometimes find themselves outwitted. While that merchant duped an ignorant fellow out of a cow, Jack climbed a beanstalk, defeated a giant, and lived happily ever after. When you look to the Grail legend, you see tales of a blighted land and a wounded king, and the only thing that can heal it is a pure fool. And when you look further east to Russia, you run into something called the Yorodivye, the Holy Fools. These were... Men who went mad for Christ, they functioned something like a court jester. One year, Dive walked up to Ivan the Terrible on a Good Friday, eating a piece of raw meat. For those of you who aren't Christian, Catholics and Orthodox fast on Good Friday, and one of the fasts is we refrain from all meat products. So here's this mad hobo the man was naked save for a loincloth and chains he was dragging around himself you know, that was his particular holy fool shtick 
He walks up to him and says, Eat, eat, Ivan, you should eat. You shed blood every other day. Ivan the Terrible, they didn't call him Ivan the Terrible because of his taste in fish, and Ivan the Terrible was notoriously short-tempered and brutal. Ivan ate the meat and tearfully begged forgiveness. When you lived in a brutal world, and Ivan the Terrible certainly lived in a brutal world and lived up to a brutal world, you know how easily innocence is taken. And our ancestors saw as blessed the ones who were incapable of losing their innocence. Today, we see those people as defective and we see them as flawed and we no longer really have any use for the whole idea of innocence. Early in the 20th century, Alfred Binet warned that his Binet-Simon scale in America became the basis of the Stanford Binet intelligence test, was an imperfect measure with limited applications, and while his test became a worldwide sensation, those warnings were ignored. People used the tests as a measure of a human's fitness. In 1927, the Supreme Court heard the case of Buck versus Bell, Carrie Buck was a pregnant 18-year-old from a poor Virginia family. She'd been committed to an institution as an unwed mother. And there, the best specialist of the day found that Carrie Buck had the mind of a nine-year-old. They tested her mother, who was 52. She had a history of prostitution, immorality, as they called it. She was tested, and they found that she had a mental age of Eight. When they examined Carrie's infant daughter, Vivian, they decided that Vivian also showed signs of feeble-mindedness, and so the doctors at the institution moved that Buck be sterilized in accordance with the day's prevailing scientific principles. The question went to the Supreme Court, which decided eight to one that the operation should be performed. Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in the in the opinion, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. And... Quite a few journalists agreed with Oliver Wendell Holmes. In Charlottesville, that hotbed of liberalism, the Daily Progress praised the Holmes opinion for its progressive tendencies, and that ever-liberal Time magazine dismissed those who opposed eugenics as sentimentalists. Between 1907 and 1927, those were the very early days of the American eugenics movement, Over 8,500 Americans were sterilized. In the 10 years after Buck versus Bell, that's between 1927 and 1937, nearly 28,000 Americans were rendered infertile. Hitler's 1933 Law for the Prevention of Hereditarily Defective Offspring, or the Sterilization Laws, 
were, they were modeled on laws which were passed across the United States, drawn up by American eugenicists in the wake of the Buck versus Bell decision. At the Nuremberg trials, the defendants cited Buck versus Bell in their defense pleadings. California was a particular hotbed of sterilizations from 1909 to 1979. Institutions in California sterilized 20,000 inmates. That's nearly one-third of the 68,000 of America's genetically questionable people who were you know, mutilated by what could only be described as a neuter and release program. In Britain today, 90% of babies which, who are diagnosed in the womb with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome are aborted before birth, and in Denmark, the number is 98%. Babies born with Down syndrome, people living with Down syndrome, suffer from a number of ailments. They have thyroid problems, they have the epicanthic fold, they have loose limbs, but the biggest problem they have is learning disabilities. Most born with Down syndrome have an IQ between 30 and 69. Few of them are ever going to be able to function in modern society without supervision. But if you give them that support, Trisomy 21 is no barrier to living a happy or even a productive life. The people who are terminating these pregnancies aren't doing it because they fear the thyroid issues, the cataracts, the hearing issues. They're doing so because you know, they fear their baby will be mentally retarded. And they, out of convenience, out of compassion for like what life they feel that child could have, whatever, I'm not judging them for making that decision. But I'm pointing out that the pre-Christian West, when the baby was born that was unfit, you just left him out in a field. The post-Christian West saves you the trouble of burying a child and finding a field. And now let's look at West Virginia. In their glory days, the coal mines of West Virginia employed over 100,000 people. Today they employ fewer than 20,000 unemployment, drug abuse, despair, hopelessness, suicide. They're endemic throughout the Appalachians. The fall of big coal took down those small businesses long before COVID-19 was even a gleam in somebody's lab. And so what solutions do we have to offer to those desperately poor unemployed miners? Well, Joe Biden, December 30, 2019, said they ought to learn to code, or as he put it, anybody who can go down 3,000 feet in a mine can sure as hell learn to program as well. And well, there are a few things wrong with that statement. The first is the skills required for mining and coding may not entirely overlap, but Terry Steele, who's a fourth-generation coal miner from the region, said, Coding and programming is something I don't have a clue about, and I don't really know whether I could learn it or not. A lot of miners probably could, but the thing about this is, even if you could learn it, where in these areas are the jobs available at? 
especially here in southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky, where these miners have lived their whole lives and want to live the rest of their lives. And where are the jobs that pay money like these miners were making in the mines and that also have health care? And especially if you worked for a union mine, a pension. But an even bigger problem is that Joe Biden turns the onus for this problem right back on the miners. I mean, the miners didn't vote for the environmental laws that are closing many of these coal mines. The miners didn't ask to sacrifice their jobs and their family futures in the name of lower carbon emissions. But the problem isn't with those laws. The problem isn't with the men who failed to account for the economic cost of those laws. The problem is with those miners that are just too dumb to learn how to code. The information societies are run by equations, and in the cold equations of economy, we don't see tradition and we don't see justice. The only thing those cold equations are concerned about is utility and obsolescence. If you got sufficient aptitude to make yourself useful in the new order, maybe you'll find a place. The rest of you are just obsolescent tools unfit for modern technology and postmodern morality. And where those noble lords kept illuminated manuscripts that lauded the virtues of honest peasants, we have anti-racism activist Tim Weiss who tells us, in the pantheon of American history, conservative old white people have pretty much always been the bad guys, the keepers of the hegemonic and reactionary flame, the folks unwilling to share the category of American with others on equal terms, fine, keep it up. It doesn't matter because you're on the endangered list. And unlike, say, the bald eagle or some exotic species of muskrat, you are not worth saving. In 40 years or so, maybe fewer, there won't be any more white people around who actually remember that leave it to beaver, father knows best, Opie Taylor down at the fishing hole, corn pone bullshit that you hold so near and dear to your heart. There won't be any more white folks around who think the 1950s were the good old days, because there won't be any more white folks around who actually remember them, and so therefore we'll be able to teach about them accurately and honestly, without hurting your precious feelings or those of the so-called greatest generation, a bunch whose white contingent was top-heavy with ethical miscreants who helped save the world from fascism only to return home and oppose the ending of it here by doing nothing to lift a finger on behalf of the civil rights struggle. It's okay, because in about 40 years, half the country will be black or brown, and there is nothing you can do about it. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it, and I want you to answer it honestly. You don't have to answer it to me, but it's important that you answer this question to yourself. You tell me if you think people who are celebrating the de impending demise of poor white American culture are not going to celebrate every bit as loud and every bit as long when it comes time to getting rid of the poor black people, the poor Hispanic people, the poor gay people, whatever group is fashionable today. When they become inconvenient, do you think that they're going to work any harder to stop your demise, or that they're going to feel any less happy about losing a population that they consider to be a burden rather than an integral part of the system?
I think we both know the answer, don't we? And while we struggle to rectify our ideology with the inconvenient data that keeps popping up, this is not a new problem. We've talked about Slavic holy fools. Let's bring up a Slavic less than holy fool, a man named Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko was born in 1898 to a family of desperately poor Ukrainian peasants. He was illiterate till he was 13, but Lysenko was an early and enthusiastic adopter of communism. Lysenko's particular field of interest was getting crops to grow in the harsh, cold conditions of the Soviet farmland. Because Lysenko was a Marxist, he believed that plants, animals, and people were shaped alone by their environment. If you put them in the proper setting, you expose them to the right stimuli, you can remake them as you see fit. This clashes with the idea, which is also rising at this time, we're gaining greater knowledge in the 20s and 30s of genetics. And genetics, of course, you've got fixed traits. Plants and animals have stable characteristics. They're encoded in our genes. The genes are then passed down to their offspring, who pass these genes down to their offspring. But there's an awful lot of determinism in that, and that made the Soviets very uncomfortable, so they much favored Lysenko's ideas. Now, Lysenko described classical genetics, the stuff we get down from Gregor Mendel and a few other people, as a reactionary theory which was inconsistent with the philosophy of dialectical materialism. Because, of course, Marxist theory holds that man can change the world, can change his conditions. Genetics suggests man is limited by what he inherits from his parents. And, of course, you can use ideas like that to justify aristocracy. You can use those to justify the idea that one group is inherently inferior to the other. And Lysenko had a much more Marxist-friendly theory. It's not a Darwinian struggle of survival of the fittest with the best passing their genes down. It's a life experience that involves cooperation and competition among individuals within a species, that there's mutual assistance between different species, and that the environment plays an enormous role. As Lysenko put it, the organism and the conditions required for its life are an inseparable unity. Different living bodies require different environmental conditions for their development. By studying these requirements, we come to know the qualitative features of the nature of organisms, the qualitative features of heredity. Heredity is pr the property of a living body to require definite conditions for its life and development and to respond in a definite way to various conditions. And Lysenko, like a good communist scientist, had proof of this. He had engaged in practices by exposing seeds to moisture and cold. He'd caused winter wheat to winter wheat, which you have to plant in the winter, hence the name. He had it. He was able to get a crop out of winter wheat by freezing it, putting it in freezing water, and then later planting it, it, it bloomed in the spring. Now, it's a, this is a practice called vernalization. It was known among farmers. 
but Lysenko did it once over a few hectares, and you know he reasoned from there that this seed going forward would no longer be winter wheat, it would be spring wheat, and from there that by using this process and processes like these, he could make orange trees grow in Siberia. Now, you may note some issues with Lysenko's methodology, with his sample size, with the conclusions he drew from available evidence, and with lots of things. Certainly, other scientists of the time did. Lysenko was considered a crank in most of the West. In Russia, Lysenko was the Minister of Agriculture and enjoyed the enthusiastic support of Comrade Joseph Stalin. So he used that to enact a purge of the geneticists, agronomists, any scientist who might disagree with him and uphold any of those abhorrent Mendelian genetics. They're laughing at him in the West about it, so of course any geneticist in Russia who holds these beliefs must be a Western spy acting as an agent of destabilization against the people's state. Lysenko, by many accounts, set Russian agronomy, Russian genetics, Russian biology back 50 years by his purges. Scientists who disagreed with him, scientists who had written opinions in the past favoring Mendelian genetics, lost their jobs, were sent to gulags, some of them were shot. You think cancel culture is bad today? Believe me, it can get much, much worse. But the end result of all these cancellations, all the enthusiastic experiments done with Lysenko's theories, were a lot of crops rotting in the field, tiny yields, mass famines, between 15 and 30 million people starved to death when Lysenko's ideas were put in practice in the Soviet Union and later in Maoist China. You can ignore the data and declare your finding state policy. You can silence anybody who brings up inconvenient facts but that doesn't change the data, and it doesn't change the facts. The laws of genetic inheritance are going to come into play, whether or not you believe them, or whether or not you pass a law vetoing them. And there's a famous acronym that's used to describe the typical response to this inconvenient data, Naxalt, N-A-X-A-L-T. Not all X are like that. And of course, this argument is based in reality. Not all X are like that. We talk about the standard IQ deviation difference between black and white people. Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, a black man, is a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon. He did the first separation of conjoined twins connected at the cranium. You don't do an operation like that successfully because of affirmative action, because somebody covered for you, Dr. Ben Carson has certainly more than proven his intelligence, his skill, and anything else. Clarence Thomas is a Supreme Court Justice, Thurgood Marshall. We can give many examples of 
black people of average of high of superior intelligence and there are also many white people who are of below average intelligence by definition 50 percent of white people are going to be below the average white intelligence there are lots of white families who are never going to be the Brady Bunch, no matter how hard you try to educate them. You can move them to a fine neighborhood, and it's just going to be the Beverly Hillbillies with extra meth on. We all know that. There's also lots of black families that ain't never going to be the Huxtables, no matter how hard you try to fit them into that mold which you've created for the ideal black person. You know, there's lots of people who aren't going to become the Arnaz family, no matter how hard you try to squeeze them into what you think is the ideal mold of a, mold of a Hispanic person. We've worked at making these people better, and when that doesn't work, we want to try making them disappear. What would happen if instead we started asking the question not how do we make these people better or how do we get rid of them, but how do we make these people happy? We want to reshape these people to better fit our modern world. Why don't we ask instead the ways in which these humble, simple people are best fit to reshape our world? A commenter on Slug, a new social media outlet I just joined, commented that my earlier blog post on this subject was paternalistic. You know, why am I trying to look out for the simple people? Why did I appoint myself over these simple people? And first, I noticed the whole idea that this was a paternalistic attitude. It may be, certainly, you know, the idea that the more intelligent have an obligation to look after the less intelligent, just like the strong have an obligation to look after the weak. But that was the basic understanding. Pretty much every ruler in the West governed under up until the French Revolution. There was an idea that the king was in a metaphorical sense, the father of his country. Every subject was his child, and he was responsible for seeing to their well-being. You could argue, of course, that very few kings took that seriously. And again, I'm not going to argue that the ideal was honored in the breach as much or more than in the observance, but that ideal was there. And historically, Kings who saw their subjects as allies and valuable treasures rather than as hostiles or as resources out of which we could squeeze as much tribute as possible did better for themselves. The French kings historically were skeptical of arming their peasants and they forbade the peasants from weapons training. In England, the Assize Law from Edward of 1252 mandated that Every Englishman have a longbow and have arrows and have experience in shooting it. For the French knights and for the chivalric orders, the arrow was a questionable weapon for a noble to use. There's no real honor in hitting somebody with a missile. The only honorable way to fight is the way it's always been done, on horseback or on foot with a sword or with your weapon of choice, hand to hand. The knights may have had those codes of honor, but the peasants weren't bound by them, and so those English peasants became a really devastating 
devastating force in the ongoing battles between the French and English. Probably the best example of that would be Agincourt, the battle at 1415. Thousands of French cavalry, the flower of French nobility, the best nobles in heavy armor, running towards them with their heavy horses, ready to break the English line, when they discovered that a peasant English longbowman with one of those long U-bows could fire an arrow that would go through plate armor like it was paper. 6,000 French knights died at that battle. The English lost 112 thanks to their peasants. Was being a peasant under a noble lord who thought you simple, but who admired you for your simplicity and who sought to protect you, worse than being courted by a man who sees you merely as part of a voting block and who sees your simplicity as a way by which you can be more easily exploited? The paterfamilias model has certainly been abused. There have been bad kings, there have been bad fathers, there have been bad families. But it is a model that works if it's done right. If you know that you have a moral obligation to help your people, or barring that, if you know that your community expects you to uphold your moral obligation to help your people, then you're more likely to help your people. Again, my usual disclaimer, this is not a perfect system. We don't live in an ideal world, and therefore we don't live up to our ideals. But as ideals go, it's a workable and time-tested one. And another commenter noted that my piece had a bit of a nostalgic tone and said that this was common among reactionary movements during times of chaos. And I can't really disagree with that, but I want to make clear how I'm using nostalgia. I'm really not interested in recreating a medieval English village. I'm certainly, if I wanted to LARP at being a medieval, I would go join the SCA. My problem is very simple. I believe that our modern system, that modern society, has failed, that it is falling, and that we're going to need to rebuild something out of the chaos that ensues. When the new system doesn't work, your best bet is to go back and look at old systems, see how they handled chaos, how they handled the kind of stresses you're facing today. I mean, the ancient world certainly saw plagues and economic crises. It saw ethnic and religious conflicts between groups. And it's faced several movements that wanted to reshape the world from the ground up and remake it in their own image. I go back to those old sources because I'm looking for old wisdom that I want to apply to modern times. I don't want to relive ancient times. Well, I might love reliving ancient times, but that option's not really available to me. I live in the 21st century. And any society that I rebuild out of those ashes, that I help rebuild out of those ashes, 
is going to be a 21st century society. I expect that we're going to have a greater shortage of resources and that likely a lot of the technology that we've come to take for granted may be less available to us or may even not be available to us at all. And again, those are lessons that are preserved in the old history books. This is not the first time we've seen an empire crash. This is not even the first time that we've seen civilization reach a high technical level that they don't reach again for centuries. There are a lot of different ways that this crash could work itself out after we lose the petrodollar and after the Federal Reserve is no longer able to prop up the economy. All of them are rough. Some of them are much, much rougher than others. But none of these situations are unprecedented. Every situation's unique. No situation is unprecedented. If you look hard enough, and gen generally you don't even really have to look that hard, you can find examples of these things happening at other times in other places throughout Western history, throughout world history. You can draw lessons from there. You can look back to the, the way our ancestors lived and learn how they coped or how they failed to cope with that situation. We can learn from their successes and we can learn from their failures. And one of the things that we need to do toward that end is to shake off that modern conditioning, to rid ourselves of that modern idea that we're nothing but an aggregate collection of data that we can group into larger aggregate collections of data. We have to start examining and criticizing a world where our students in our schools are now being taught how to perform well on a test where once they were taught how to be good citizens. We've replaced education on character with education on how to measure up to a test. And that's not going to work in the long term. And it's not working in the short term. So what efforts could we make toward creating a better world for the simple people, for creating a world where those simple people could live in a life that was peaceful, prosperous, and productive. Well, the first thing we could do is stop seeing the simple man as a problem to be solved. We could understand that there are going to be people in our society who are primarily qualified to work manual labor or simple repetitive tasks that don't require a great deal of thinking, planning, and foresight. So we would make sure that those people had jobs which allowed them to use their talents to the best of their abilities, and we would make sure that in exchange for an honest day's work at those jobs, those people would receive an honest day's pay. If those simple people had the capacity to learn a skilled artisan trade, we would work hard to teach that to them. And if they became skilled craftsmen or skilled traders, they would be compensated once again accordingly for their efforts. We would not treat them as disposable. 
we would not leave our fellow citizens idle and bring in workers who were willing to work for less out of desperation the way we do with so many economic migrants today we get them embroiled in a relationship that's exploitative to the immigrant that exploits the native worker and that only profits the wealthy plutocrats who own the companies and the farms which hire these people now that's one of the dirty little secrets of the left you'll see all these efforts to tie BLM into immigrant rights, into open borders, open borders and illegal immigration disproportionately hurt the working classes and black Americans are disproportionately members of the working classes in the name of Black Lives Matter. So many people on the left are promoting policies which are actively harming the black community, which are taking money out of the pockets of black workers, which are taking jobs out of the black community. And the second thing I would give simple people is a sense of purpose and a sense of identity. We live in a society where the individual is paramount, the individual's needs are paramount, the individual's self-identity is paramount. You can be whoever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do. That's wonderful for people who have the spare resources, the spare time, and the spare imagination to engage in self-creation. But if you task most people with self-creation, they're going to run screaming to somebody who will tell them who they are and what it is they're supposed to do. We're pack animals. We define ourselves by our relation to our community. Many of the people that are most commonly dismissed as low-information voters are devoutly Christian. Within Christianity, certainly within Roman Catholicism, there's an idea that the simple are often closer to God. Where smart Christians have to struggle with theological issues, struggle with faith, struggle with doctrine, the simple people will frequently just know in their hearts and manage to live more moral lives and accomplish more for God's kingdom than the wise man does. Now, a lot of people will argue that that mindset infantilizes the mentally challenged, that it romanticizes their position. I guess I can see all of that, but it also reminds us of the limits of human wisdom and it reminds us that one's value as a human being adds up to a lot more than just your scores on an intelligence test. In a just society, we would all recognize and internalize the idea that an honest poor man was morally superior to a dishonest rich man because we knew that simple people are frequently exploited by the wealthy, 
we would make every effort to protect them from people that wanted to steal their resources with a fountain pen just as surely as we protect them from people who want to steal their resources with a switchblade or a gun. We would protect the simple people against usurers, against money lenders, against abominations like payday loan companies, which bleed the poor and the most vulnerable. We would protect them from slum lords. Those simple people who had the talent and the ability for more complicated, more demanding jobs should certainly receive every chance to reach the best of their ability, regardless of their heritage, their ethnicity, their religious creed, any incidentals. No person should be shut out of an opportunity simply because of their race or anything else. Those who don't qualify for those opportunities, those people who really are most fit for the simple tasks and a simple life, would not be made to feel inferior for that. One of the problems with our society, John Steinbeck allegedly once said, I believe the quote may be apocryphal, that Americans fancy themselves as temporarily inconvenienced millionaires. When you have a society that concentrates on the individual, that tells the individual you can be anything you want and you can do whatever you want to do, you also add the unspoken corollary that if you don't live up to your own expectations, it's your fault and your failure. Our current system sees people with below average IQ scores as temporarily inconvenienced geniuses. They believe that if only they can make the right social changes, if only they can get the right programs funded, if only they can weed out the hidden racism inherent in all these tests, they're going to create a world where all men are created equal and all men are equally brilliant. And when their social programs fail, and when the orange trees fail to bloom in Siberia, they're not going to blame their programs. They're not going to blame their expectations. They're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame the orange trees. They're going to treat you the way they've treated my people, the way they treat inconvenient data today. They're going to hide you away in the hopes that everybody forgets about you. After the riots are finally over and the smoke is cleared, I expect we're going to see more resentment between America's ethnic groups, not less. I expect we're going to see more segregation, not less. I take no joy in this, but that is generally the way these things go after riots. But I also expect that we will all be living alongside each other and amongst each other for the foreseeable future. I expect more segregation. I don't expect total segregation. I suspect we are going to see some ethnic cleansing and a few ethnic atrocities on all sides before it's over. I pray every night that I'm wrong. I hope if you want to pray on my behalf that I be proven wrong, you're welcome to do so. But I expect amidst all of this, no matter how bad it gets, we are going to need 
people talking amongst each other, people between the different groups of goodwill who are willing to negotiate and make honest efforts towards achieving a just and lasting peace. There are major problems in our community. My community, working class white people are struggling. We know there are struggles in the black community. There are good, honest black people, hard-working people who are doing their best to address those issues within that community. And the only place the black community will ever find healing is within itself. I sympathize with their struggle. There's very little I can do. The black community doesn't need white saviors. It can't use white saviors. It needs the people of goodwill within its community. Those people are there. Those people are on the ground and they're working. They're go we have to meet each other halfway. We're going to have to negotiate. We're going to have to ask each other difficult questions. We're going to have to make compromises that may leave none of us wholly satisfied. But before we do all of that, we're going to have to address each other, not as we would like the other to be, but as we really are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, this has been Notes from the End of Time, Episode 7. Kanaz Filan here. Thank you for listening, and may God bless us each and every one.